Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is called The Vineyard. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, October the 8th, 2017. For the month of October, Journey with Jesus is remembering the Reformation 500 years, with guest essays from five traditions. Catholic, Reformed, Anglican, Lutheran, and Eastern Orthodox. This week's essay is by Ron Hanselin, Ron Hansen, a novelist and a permanent deacon for the Catholic Diocese of San Jose, California. Although it's not clear in our English transcription or translation, the reading this week from Isaiah chapter 5, 1 to 7 is introduced as a song. We can imagine a troubadour in the Middle Ages entertaining a village of serfs with such a folk ballad about his friend, the enthusiastic owner of a fertile hillside, whose viticulture was faultless, whose spading, stone clearing, planting, and wine press were unstintingly exact and just what one would expect of a grand crew. But instead, the owner harvests a crop only of wild, bitter grapes, not the cultivated bunches that go into fine wines. And so the owner complains, What more was there to do for my vineyard that I had not done? In frustration, exasperation, and surrender, a version of our contemporary, I've had it. He claims he's going to mow down its hedge, give the land over to grazing, and make his vineyard a ruin of thorns and briars. The song, or parable, is then explained. The vineyard is the house of Israel. The owner is the Lord. And the people of Judah are his cherished plant. There is rather delightful Hebrew wordplay in the final phrases, as God sought judgment, mishpat, and justice, sedaka, but he found instead bloodshed, mispah, and heard only outcry, seach. Mint is a justification of the rights of the poor, and a holy people's cry for the help of the Lord's pervasive acts of deliverance. The Gospel reading from Matthew 21 is a parable that depends on Isaiah's text and finally becomes an argument against the chief priests and the Pharisees. Jesus tells of a landowner like Isaiah's friend who converted a plot of earth into a vineyard, surrounded it with a hedge that would forbid theft of the grapes, and constructed a watchtower and a wine press. But the vineyard owner handed over care and supervision to tenants who seize, torture, murder, or stone the servants the landowner sent to collect his produce. Even when the owner sends his son, perhaps naively thinking that he will fare better, the evil tenants kill him too, hoping in vain to acquire his inheritance. And so Jesus asks the chief priests and the elders, what will the owner of the vineyard do to those tenants when he comes? 
They agree that he will rightly see that the wretched tenants are put to a wretched death, and he'll find other tenants to manage the vineyard. Jesus follows with the warning that stewardship will be withdrawn from those who are rejecting him, that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that will produce its fruit. Like in Isaiah's chapter 5, the allegorical aspects to the parable are impossible to miss. The landowner is God. The vineyard is Israel. Its leaders are the sharecroppers. The cruelly treated agents of the landowner are the Hebrew prophets. And the slain son is Jesus himself. Controversy with the Jewish authorities is predominant in Matthew's chapters 21 to 23, each dispute increasingly prompting the opponents of Jesus to seek his death, just as earlier authorities rejected the prophets. The Matthean community was composed of Jewish Christians, so the parable in this gospel reading ought not to be construed as a haughty claim that Judaism would be superseded or replaced by Christianity. Rather, the parable is looking backward to the shameful haranguing of the Old Testament prophets and looking forward to the crucifixion of Jesus, the prophet par excellence. This month of October, the Christian world commemorates the 500th anniversary of the first stirrings of the Protestant Reformation in Martin Luther's nailing his 95 theses, written in Latin, on the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. Though it was later characterized as a choleric act of rebellion against the Roman Catholic Church, it was, in fact, a standard practice then for theologians to post their ideas in such a way to invite academic conversation and debate. Luther seems not to have intended a schism with Catholicism, but it became inevitable four years later when he was excommunicated by the hedonistic Pope Leo X of the affluent Medicis, who, on his election as pontiff, famously said, Since God has given us the papacy, let us enjoy it. In his effort to reconstruct St. Peter's Basilica, he was selling indulgences internationally. The greater the amount offered, the less the time the sinner had to endure in purgatory. It was a corrupt practice that seemed to give the Pope the governance that was God's alone, and Luther was right to be offended. But with the rise of Lutheranism as an alternative Catholicism, the floodgates opened, and the next centuries found a cascade of alternative denominations— the Reformed, founded in Switzerland by John Calvin, the Presbyterians in Scotland by John Knox, the Methodists in England by Wesley, the Anglicans by King Henry VIII, and so on. A host of sects principally defined themselves by what they were not, that is, papists, and it was not uncommon to look on Catholics as the former faithless tenants in a vineyard now tended to by good stewards justly serving their master. Well, at least religiously, we are in far more enlightened 
in ecumenical times now, and recognize that the vineyard is not just one particular sect, but Christianity itself. We have far more that unites us than divides us. Novelist Ron Hansen, A Catholic Perspective on the Reformation. For books this week, I go back 22 years. It's a book that's edited by David Curzon. The title, The Gospels in Our Image, an anthology of 20th century poetry based on biblical texts. New York, Harcourt Brace, 1995, 279 pages. When I launched this Journey with Jesus webzine way back in 2004, one of the biggest surprises to me was how popular our poetry features were. Today, our poetry archive features 340 poems by 145 poets. So, even though this book is dated by 22 years, in fact, it's perfect for our readership. This anthology collects over 150 poems that are based on the four Gospels. It's a companion volume to Kurtzon's earlier book that's called Modern Poems on the Bible, an anthology that collected 170 poems based upon the Hebrew Bible, 1993. After a 30-page introduction, the poems follow the major events and teachings in the life of Christ, beginning with the Annunciation, the Nativity, the Magi, and so on, then proceeding through poems on selected miracles like the wedding at Cana, teachings like the Sermon on the Mount, and parables like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. The final poems are on the Last Supper, Gethsemane, the Crucifixion, and Resurrection. The poems here are contemporary, Rilke, Eliot, Sylvia Plath, and so on, as the title of the book indicates. So there are no older favorites here, like Don Herbert or Hopkins. Some of the poems are devotional, others are skeptical. Curzon includes the gospel text under consideration which is then followed by the poems on the text. The book concludes with some minimal notes about the poems, an index of the poets with their dates and nationalities, and an index of titles. For poetry anthologies that are both similar and yet different to this volume, you can see my reviews of Harold Bloom and Jesse Zuba editors of the book American Religious Poems, 2006, that collects 900 poems. And then Jay Hopler and Kimberly Johnson, editors, with a title called Before the Door of God, an anthology of devotional poetry, Yale University Press, 2013. The book cited by Kurtzon, Robert Atwan and Lawrence Weeder, editors, the volume is called Chapters into Verse, Poetry in English Inspired by the Bible, Oxford, 1993. 
and numerous other volumes of poetry in our Journey with Jesus archive. Once again, David Curzon, editor, the title of the book, The Gospels in Our Image, an anthology of 20th century poetry based on biblical texts from 1995. For movies this week, I review a title from Iraq. It's called Letters from Baghdad. This documentary film tells the fascinating story of the remarkable Gertrude Bell, who lived from 1868 to 1926, sometimes known as the female Lawrence of Arabia. Born into a home that looks like Downton Abbey, she became an Oxford graduate, writer, traveler, ethnographer, mountaineer, political administrator, archaeologist, explorer, cartographer, linguist, Arabist, and, let it be known, possible spy. She is rightly remembered for her influence in founding the state of Iraq after World War I. Upon her death from an overdose of sleeping pills at the age of 58, in his obituary, the British archaeologist and contemporary of Bell, D.G. Hogarth, wrote, No woman in recent time has combined her qualities, her taste for arduous and dangerous adventure, with her scientific interest and knowledge, her competence in archaeology and art, her distinguished literary gift, her sympathy for all sorts and conditions of men, her political insight and appreciation of human values, her masculine vigor, hard common sense and practical efficiency, all tempered by feminine charm in a most romantic spirit." End quote. This film gets my vote for best documentary of 2017. Once again, Letters from Baghdad, 2017, about the fascinating Gertrude Bell. For poetry this week, we continue our little mini-series by the poet Scott Cairns. This week, his poem is called Idiot Psalm 10. He calls it a psalm of Isaac, hoarsely sung. And yet again, the wicked in his arrogance, in his acutely hemmed and tapered sense of self, has found sufficient opportunity to hound the lowly. And yet again, great enabler, the lowly, draped in their accustomed modesty in threadbare suits bereft have seized the chance to suffer quietly, stage left. Therefore, now again, I puzzle why, O holy, silent, o holy silence, why do you appear to bide unheeding some great distance hence? Why, O blithely unapparent, do you remain serenely imperceptible? even to our thinning crew who stand here blinking at the sky. 
I have no stomach for the newspapers, no heart for the brilliant flat-screen-lit catalog of woes. Though every item flickers, one admits, wondrously produced and duly sponsored. See here, the wicked boasts about his late successes. The grasping man complains that he is cheated of his share. While all the while the self-concern continue banking largely on your accustomed reticence, and must needs let out their trousers still several measures more, having wagered well. Pinched beneath their spinning machinations in all their neat machines, we grind our teeth, yea, even as we sleep. No wonder, he says, it's hoarsely sung. Idiot Psalm 10 by Scott Cairns. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 8th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.